Hello everyone and welcome back to the second part of this interview with composer, arts administrator and social justice artist Anthony Green, American composer living in Europe. Mr. Green, thank you for your continuing presence. Hello again, it's great to be back. As you might have noticed, this podcast wishes to frequently address issues of ethics in the domain of music. You are an arts administrator and founder of a concert and education series in the United States. What are the most difficult ethical issues you have encountered with respect to programming and repertoire selections? To be honest, the most difficult ethical issue is our programming, yet it shouldn't be. Castle of Our Skins is a concert and education series organization. Our mission is that we're dedicated to celebrating Black artistry through music. I constantly tell people that I actually hate that our organization has to exist in order to attempt bringing composers of color throughout history the recognition that they deserve. However, I also know that we cannot do this alone as an organization. When Ashley Gordon and I started Castle of Our Skins in 2013, we, know, we knew so little about Black composers, and this was after having finished six years of post-secondary education at high-quality institutions in the States. It was only through starting Castle of Our Skins that I learned of Vicente Lusitano, an Afro-Portuguese composer and theorist of the Renaissance era whose music is stunning, or Chevalier de Saint-Georges, a black composer, conductor, violinist, and fencer from Guadeloupe who worked mostly in Paris. He was a piano teacher to Marie Antoinette. He commissioned Haydn's Paris symphonies. He lived with Mozart at one point of his life. He was recommended to lead the prestigious Paris Opera, but turned down the offer after he learned that three Parisian singers complained that the ensemble would hate to be led by a black man. And yes, he was also a general in the French Revolution. His violin concerti are known to have pushed the boundaries of violin register at the time, and those concerti were well respected for their rhythms and their momentum, but these concerti and other works of his are hardly performed today compared to his non-Black contemporaries. I hate that I currently work within an industry that regularly excludes composers like Blind Tom, William Grant Still, Estelle Ricketts, Margaret Bonds, Julia Perry, Julius Eastman, and others from being studied in music history and music theory classes, from being recommended to students for performances, and from being programmed in world-class performance venues. I shouldn't have had to make an organization that attempts to change this problem. But the classical music world does have a problem, and it excites me to be part of the solution. And thank you for being part of the solution, for bringing your creative energy to increasing the visibility of Black composers. I wish to focus now on a particular specificity of the United States. My experience there included a lot of box ticking. I learned that to have myself included in programs, I had to emphasize the fact that I'm a woman and an immigrant, as well as my minority cultural background something that I never had to do in Europe. 
I wonder whether this exoticizing of immigrants is true for U.S. immigrants in Europe as well. Do you find that European producers try to build interest based on your nationality or race when deciding or not to program your works? Has your music been pigeonholed? Since I've moved here, I've never experienced overt box ticking when I've been programmed or asked to be part of a project or a collaboration. I have, however, experienced quite a bit of box ticking on applications to various European opportunities. This happens, for example, with international competitions, usually with application fees that require the applicant to send in a passport picture, which usually means that the organization either excludes U.S. citizens or focuses on local composers, despite calling itself international. I've also observed quite a number of European opportunities that write that they're open to diverse practices, styles, genres, etc., but only accept a specific niche of applicants that belong to a very specific composition circle. I neither begrudge the decisions of these organizations nor the composers who have accepted them. I myself admit to being part of opportunities who have employed similar practices. The difference between these practices and overt box-ticking practices is that when opportunities genuinely want to help women, queer, and immigrant composers, composers of color, or composers of insert underrepresented group here, the opportunities must make this intention clear in order to encourage such composers to apply to the opportunities. And even then, the number of submissions from these composers usually pales in comparison to the quantity of such requested composers. And the reasons for this are quite varied. I would say mostly because of access and to an already ingrained feeling of exclusion. My general take is that because the classical music world has a well-documented history of institutionally discriminating against composers who are not white and male, the classical music world has created a community of composers who are overwhelmingly white and male, many of whom are incredibly talented, don't get me wrong. But, these, but this community also regularly fails to acknowledge, support, and promote composers who are not white and male. And in the rare cases that the acknowledgement does happen on a deserving level, the composer is usually dead. Conversations about the discrimination of female composers have led to more and more recognition of their achievements, but I'd be hard-pressed to agree that this new attention and just recognition would have happened without such conversations. That said, here in Europe, I'm quite sure that box-ticking happens internally for grant purposes, but not necessarily externally for advertising purposes. It wouldn't surprise me if my own identity has been used for internal box ticking, but I can't be 100% sure of such practices, just like I can never be 100% sure when my identity is a reason or part of a reason for me being rejected. The invisible discrimination poses barriers that we cannot always be aware of, and that in most cases we sadly cannot ignore. I wish to invite you to imagine a utopian situation, especially since you describe yourself 
as a fighter for social justice. Please describe what a socially just contemporary concert music season would look like if you had the power to stage one with no financial or logistical limitations. I'm also very interested to know whether your answer would differ depending on whether you talk about the US or about the European reality. As someone who has thought about this myself, I would obviously tailor the programming to reflect the local population realities and especially educational institutions. How would you approach this utopian situation? As there are many such approaches to social justice, music, and art practice, there would be, of course, many interpretations of your question. And that's such a good problem to have. But I'll just give you an example of what I would do in a five-concert series, um, a five-concert season with unlimited budget. And it would take me forever to explain the reasoning behind the pieces that I've selected, so I'll just tell you the pieces that I've selected. Um, my model would be a six-piece concert, irrespective of duration, um, by with a wide range of composers. So concert one would be called Unknown Masterpieces. This would be a concert focusing on music by composers who've had significant contributions to the classical music world, but are regularly pro unprogrammed, not studied, and overlooked. So I'd start with a madrigal by Vicente Lusitano, then a dance by Ignatius Sancho, arranged either by Trevor Weston or Brianna Ware, that would be followed by a movement of a late cantata by Elizabeth Jacquet de la Guerre, and then an intermission. Second half would open with Battle of Manassas by Blind Tom, lovely solo piano piece. Then Clara Schumann's incredible piano trio, and close with Julia Perry's Study for Orchestra. Second concert would be t called This Should Never Have Happened. This is a concert uh, focusing on music without text that utilizes situations of oppression or inequality as a foundation. So it would start with Nanking, Nanking, A Threnody for Orchestra and Pippa by Bright Chang. Followed by that would be Kibo for Solo Violin by Alan Hilario. Um, this could also be played on solo viola, according to the composer. This would be followed by Jasper Drag by Alvin Singleton. After an intermission, I would open up with Confrontations and Tensions by Dolores White, then Tracing Mississippi by Jared Impich Cha Cha Ha Tate, then Rage by Renee Baker. That would close the concert. Concert number three would be called Listen Slash Learn, or Listen Stroke Learn for British speakers. Um, this would, sorry, British listeners. This would be a concert focusing on music with text that deals with issues of social justice. The concert would open with a selection from And They Lynched Him on a Tree by William Grant Still, followed by an excerpt of The Knife of Dawn by Hannah Kendall, and then an excerpt of Tom Tom by Shirley Graham Dubois. After an intermission, I'd open up with Two Ricciacare by Ruth Crawford Seeger, then selections from Scenes of the Life of a Martyr by Undine Smith-Moore, and close with Yet Unheard by Courtney Bryan. 
The fourth concert would be called Overt Slash Covert Celebration. This would be a concert focusing on celebratory music with regards to social justice, even though some of the music might not immediately sound celebratory. The concert would open up with Arise Athena by Eleanor Alberga. It would then move to sorry, it would then move to Disturbed Taboo by Montati Masebi, followed by Babylon by Sidney Marquez Boquiren. After an intermission, the second half would open with El Libro de los Gestos by Cecilia Ardito, followed by And Then There Were Spirits by Nancy Tam, concluding with excerpts from Gaijin by Pamela Z. Then the fifth concert would be called Unlimited, and this would be a concert of six commissioned works. I most likely would select the composers Shannon C., then Sarah Hennies, then Mokale Koapeng, then Jeyung Chung, then Mikhail Johnson, and Elizabeth A. Baker. Of course, this is just one season, and this one season would only scratch the surface. Thank you, Mr. Green, for the wonderfully illuminating answers. Dear listeners, you now have a long list of listening recommendations to expand your knowledge of music by composers who are members of underrepresented communities. Thank you for tuning in. Please join us for the third part of this interview where we will hear more about Mr. Green's music. Thanks so much for having me.